you think, or a lot of people think that they can save money in that case by working with a seller's agent directly. And this, guys, is a big, big, big mistake. Hey, it's JP. Hi, it's Excel. And you're listening to Terry Shower on the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. So this week, I decided to talk about something that happens about once a month. It's a question that I get very often from people, often who've gotten themselves into some trouble or who are having buyer's remorse. So the question that I get is, can you save money buying a property without a real estate agent? So let's start by unpacking this. Those are really, there are really two cases that have to do with this. So the first is uh, for sale by owner. So if you're able to get an off-market deal that is for sale by owner, you're the seller and you're able to do the transaction directly with the seller, yes, it's possible to make money without having an agent in the middle. It's also kind of attractive to do a deal directly where you don't have to deal with other competitors. And if you have enough knowledge to make sure that you can go through the due diligence process competently by yourself, first of all, and secondly, that you know how to write contracts or you have someone advising you how to do the offer properly. In that case, yes, you can make money buying directly from the seller. But that's not what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the case where the seller is already represented by an agent, the seller's agent. And you think or a lot of people think that they can save money in that case by working with a seller's agent directly. And this, guys, is a big, big, big mistake. And I'm going to tell you why it's a big mistake. So the first thing, just right off the bat, is the relationship that exists between the seller and his agent is a relationship that predates your existence in their universe. And you have to assume that that's a close relationship and that the agent's allegiance ultimately is to the seller. It's not going to be to you. And even though, you know, the OASIC or like a lot of real estate boards have, you know, deontology, you know, like clauses and, and rules and all that stuff, from a human point of view, don't believe that that seller's agent is working for you, the buyer. And we're going to get into how that will influence the transaction a little bit later. But the first little thing I want to poke is the commission. So if you guys don't understand how agents get paid, the agent sells a commission, uh, signs a commission contract with the seller. Okay, the person, the listing agent has a contract with the seller. And usually that contract is made for a specific fee. So let's say 4% is probably the standard. Now you're thinking where you can save money is that if I go into this transaction and I'm not represented by an agent myself, the listing agent is going to be happy to cut his commission and he's going to work for 2% anyway. And as a result, he's going to be more likely to drop the price. This is just quite simply not true. And yeah, you know, sellers do like to work with direct buyers because it gives them greater control of the transaction. Might they knock half a percentage point off the commission if the negotiation gets hairy? They might, but it's quite unlikely. And unless you are signing a piece of paper that actually says that the agent is dropping his commission, it's not happening. So you assuming that like, okay, I'm going to have, you know, more wiggle room on the negotiation because the agent is going to, you know, sit on part of his commission and give some of it up so that you, the buyer can make money. That's just not realistic. Um, that's not how the industry works. And, and, you know, I really don't see that happening very often. So let's just kind of get that out of the way. 
And now let's talk about where you can actually lose money and now where it's a risk for you to not be represented yourself by a buyer's agent. So if you're looking at the control of a transaction, real estate transactions are actually quite complex and we're going to get into the ways in which they're complex. And if you don't have someone who's really representing your interests, you don't know what you don't know. And it's your agent, your buyer's agent job to know those things for you. And the seller's agent is going to know that there's a lot of things that you don't know. And so let me just kind of lay these out. So the main places where the seller's agent can tilt the slope away from you, an unrepresented buyer, is in terms of how they manage the transaction. And so that has to do with the professionals that they bring to the table. So you're walking in there as a newbie buyer, because to be honest, people who are experienced buyers, when there's a seller's agent, they will almost always be represented. So you're walking in there as a newbie, you're putting your hand up, you're saying, look, I'm a newbie in the real estate field. I don't know what I'm doing. Please control this transaction for me. And chances are you're not going to have maybe your own mortgage broker. You're not going to have your own inspector. You're not going to have your notary. You're not going to have your group of professionals who is managing the transaction in your interest. So don't forget, there's not only the buyer's agent, the buyer's agent, your agent who's representing you is probably going to have their own team of professionals. And that team of professionals is working for you. If you work with the seller's agent, they're very likely to recommend those people for you. And they're going to be people who are friendly to the seller, not friendly to the buyer. So once we get into the details of the transaction, you're going to realize how this is important. So let's talk about mortgage financing. Okay. So it sounds simple. You walk in, you, uh, you know, make an offer with, with, uh, the seller's agent, and maybe he's got a mortgage broker in his pocket who can get a better rate than your bank, or maybe you don't have a pre-qualification and he brings you through his or her, you know, banker or mortgage broker. Now, where this is a problem is that one of the clauses which allows you to get out of a transaction if you're unhappy is the financing clause. And the financing clause that the, the broker, any broker, your broker, the buyer's broker, the seller's broker will write is you have to be able to qualify within a specific time period for a mortgage that meets specific criteria. So if you're represented by your buyer's agent, he will write that clause in a way that is of interest to you. So for example, right now, interest rates are a little bit unstable. And so if I want to protect my client that we're doing an offer today and we're only going to the notary four months from now, I don't know if interest rates by that time are going to be at 8%. So in my offer, the clause I'm going to write for financing is going to be something that makes sense. So let's say today I'm going to cap it at 6% because should interest rates somehow balloon to 9%, I don't want my client to be obliged to buy at that interest rate. But if the seller's agent is the one managing it, unless you really look at that clause carefully yourself, like, are you going to notice where he's putting in 9% interest, 10% interest, whatever it is, and then you're going to be bound to respect that clause. So that's the first thing. It's how you write the clause. Enjoying the episode so far? Have you really been listening to the episode or has your monkey mind been taking you off in one direction or another? Our mental habits can be our biggest assets or our biggest liabilities as we pursue certain goals. For me, the biggest performance gains have always come from training my mind. In my book, Mindful Landlord, I talk about how you can train your mind and how you can apply some of these strategies to your journey in the real estate field. The book is available on Amazon and also on its website, mindfullandlord.com. 
Now I'll stop evangelizing for the power of mental training and let you get back to the show. Then the second thing is what happens behind that? So ideally when I'm managing a transaction representing the buyer, I want to control the financing part of the transaction. So that means that it's either my banker or my mortgage broker who's managing this. And I know that if for some reason my client wants to get out of the transaction because of financing or because of something else, I can usually have my mortgage broker generate a refusal. And okay, so how does this work? Um, when you generate a financing refusal, it automatically torpedoes the promise to purchase. And so if you're like this, you've gone through all of the other due diligence and you're in a situation where you have to proceed if you get financing acceptance, it's actually quite easy to generate financing refusal. And so like, let's just think about this. Banks are looking for reasons to not finance transactions. And very often, if you want to sort of massage things through, you know, there are certain things that you might not want to tell the bank or uh, might, you know, whatever. You might massage the, the, the data a little bit with the bank. And so should any of these things come to light, for example, um, you know, if you have cracks in the foundations, if you, the person is still in probation period, if there's some unpaid taxes from X number of years ago, like any little detail that could scare the bank, if the mortgage broker just slips that in there and generates a refusal, it's relatively easy to get out of a transaction. But now if the seller's agent is the one managing this and it's his mortgage broker or his banker who's controlling this aspect of the transaction, believe me, he's not at the last minute going to generate you a, fin a financing refusal uh, in order to get you, the buyer, out of the transaction because he's ultimately working for the seller. Okay, so that's just the financing aspect. Now, if we move on to the inspection aspect, there is also ways in which you can write the inspection clause. So there's, you know, the OSIC has standard inspection clauses that you put in and there are sentences in there that can say, under what conditions can you pull out? So the one that I like is the inspection has to be completed to the complete satisfaction of my client, the buyer. That's the most buyer friendly way of writing the inspection clause. What a seller's agent might do is to write the clause in such a way that says the buyer may only pull out if there are major factors that will in a major way diminish the value of the building and that's the only reason under which you can pull out so you know decrepit foundations or like major major things so it's not that like you inspect the building and you see some things that are like ah, i don't feel super good about this even though for somebody else like it's kind of adding subjectivity. If it's to the complete satisfaction of the buyer, anything you don't like in there, you pull out. But if it, if you're writing the clause in such a way that says it has to be some major factor, well, then you can debate about what major factors are. And maybe your reason for pulling out might not be someone else's reason for pulling out. So there's the way in which you write the clause. And then again, there's the professional that you work with. So if you're walking into a real estate transaction and you don't have your own power team or your, set, your buyer's agent giving you their power team, realize that that inspector is going to be friendly to the seller and to the seller's agent. And so, you know, there are like us as professionals in the industry, we know that there are inspectors who work in different ways. There are inspectors who torpedo transactions. There are inspectors who will give you an honest portrait of what things look like. And then there are inspectors who inspect in a, a friendly way that the transaction is probably going to go through. And so the fact of controlling the inspection and knowing that you're working with a professional who's actually really going to give you a proper sense of 
the health of the building, that is ultimately what you want. And if there's something in there you don't like, you want to be able to pull out. And so it's the job of your buyer's agent to make sure that the clauses are written to your advantage and to make sure that the inspection process happens in a way that's friendly to you. And now the last thing is is also the visit clause. So this is kind of the same thing. The way in which the visit clause is written. So quite often, um, if you're not talking about single family, you're talking about investment property, your promise to purchase is going to be contingent on visiting all of the units. And the way that clause is written is the same thing as the inspection clause. It's that clause should be written to the entire satisfaction of the buyer. Now, if you're working with a seller's agent who is representing the seller, is he going to put to the entire satisfaction of the buyer to give you a giant gaping exit hole? That's, uh, you know, you're, you're not necessarily sure of that. And so the thing is, real estate transactions are very complex. Agents go to brokers, go to school for a year to learn how to write the minutia of those clauses in ways that are either seller-friendly or buyer-friendly. And you walking in there as a complete newbie, are you going to have the knowledge to catch every single spot at which the buyer's agent is writing the contract in a way that's slanted towards the seller? It's unlikely that you're going to be able to catch all of those things. And you don't know what you don't know. And so it's also possible that, you know, there are red flags somewhere that you're not made aware of because you don't have a professional who's working for you. It's basically the seller is is the one who's paying that agent, has the relationship with that agent. And um, as a result, the, the playing field is slanted in their direction. So, you know, if I can just sort of recap this, this is a conversation that I have once a month. And the way it usually goes down is, you know, some unrepresented buyer who's relatively neophyte to real estate transactions calls me up or talks to someone you know that I know and is like Terry uh, I've got myself halfway into this transaction uh, we've gotten to this this and this point I think that I'm getting screwed I think that this is not going in my direction help me and the fact is like it's kind of very difficult for um, someone from the outside to then come in and help the person because very often you know people who find themselves in that situation don't want to spend money and of course, were you to get yourself into that kind of situation, you could pay an agent, you know, someone like me or some, another broker who's willing to work on a consulting basis to go over the paperwork. Um, and even though they're not going to get commission necessarily from the transaction, you could pay them out of pocket to go over stuff and protect you. But if your idea going in was to try to save whatever 10K by not being represented yourself, Usually someone who thinks that way is not going to be rushing to get their checkbook to, you know, pay uh, an agent who's not commissioned in the transaction to, to work for them. But like, ultimately, that's the advice because, you know, you go in, people go into this situation thinking, I'm going to save $10,000, I'm going to save $15,000 because the seller's agent's just going to knock that off his commission. But the reality is you can lose way, way, way more money and get yourself into a bad situation buying something in a way that's not advantageous to you or maybe buying a property that's actually not right for you because you didn't seek the representation um, that you should have got from the beginning. And guys, let's be honest. You as a, a buyer, basically like the commission, you're paying it anyways. So the seller's agent is going to make their 4%, their 3%, 0.5%, whatever it is. If you get represented, it's basically free because that money is already gone. And your agent, if you you know work with them properly and uh, don't go making phone calls and go visiting properties without including your agent, um, they're going to be paid out, the, out of that commission money. So in a sense, it's almost a free service. Yes, you're paying it in the sales price, but don't think that 
the seller's agent is going to knock 2% off their commission um, just to make you happy. Uh, the, the best way to make sure that you're protected is to get yourself represented by an agent who has your best interest at heart and not to believe that the seller's agent is somehow magically going to take your best interest into account in that situation. So thanks for listening to this. If you find it useful, go ahead and share it with a friend who you've heard having this conversation, talking about how they can save $15,000 by working directly with a seller's agent. And uh, please spread the knowledge because I think this is really important. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating, leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.